Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here uh, with two of the leaders of the heart failure world. On my left, Dr. Randy Starling, who's the president of the Heart Failure Society of America, which is the society that represents the physicians who treat heart failure. And further to the left, we have Jerry Eastup, who's our section head for uh, heart failure here at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, gentlemen, the Heart Failure Society has started a campaign for heart failure awareness. When did this start? What was the reasons for, for doing this? Thank you for <clears throat> asking that question, Steve. Let me preface by saying that the Heart Failure Society of America was founded about 25 years ago, and it's a multidisciplinary society. So one of our cornerstones has been all caregivers, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, the whole gamut of care. In that context, uh, we are also now embracing patients as part of our membership. That's something new just starting this year. That's very unusual for professional society. Well, we're not the first, but we think it's going to be very, very important for HFSA. We have a patient on our board. And so heart failure awareness is something that really came on our radar screen about five years ago. And as our chairman of cardiology knows, heart failure tends to be the final common pathway for most cardiovascular diseases. We can treat an MI successfully. We can treat valves, but people get heart failure. We're also focused on prevention. So we know that obesity, diabetes, hypertension, all of these issues are important. So the leadership decided that a strategy to educate at a community level would be really, really important. So the Heart Failure Awareness Campaign was launched. We work very closely with another organization that everyone's familiar with, Mended Hearts. And so we have a partnership with them we have basically a 26-page manual that says, here's how you can set up a heart failure awareness program on a local level, engage local experts, educate the community, physicians, patients, the public, what is heart failure? The real focus is to say to the public, you need to be aware of heart health. If you take care of your heart, you may never need to think about heart failure. That's very good. So, Jerry, what's the scope of the heart failure problem? I mean, how big of a, of a problem this is now in, in, in modern American society? I think that's a key question. Thank you, uh, Dr. Nissen. The prevalence number of patients in America living with heart failure, um, now just a little over 6 million. So when you think of that alone, certainly uh, devastating. And there... There's unfortunately, um, it affects both men and women, older and younger patients. And so we see uh, patients coming in um, all the time. And for me, what's alarming, um, that prevalence alone, um, is that it's associated with what it means for our patient, a lot of morbidity in the hospital. The number one cause for being in the hospital in the United States is related yes, to I heart I understand failure. that for Medicare patients, the number one admission Correct. diagnosis is congestive heart failure. Correct. And so when you think about what that means for our patients being in the hospital, and that's a red flag for another event, 
related to hospitalization, for some dying from the condition, and the costs are staggering, over $30 billion. And the majority of that's from taking care of patients in the hospital. So it is, it is a common uh, problem, and I think uh, in many ways under-recognized and very deadly syndrome for, for our patients and their loved ones. You know, I've been around long enough to have watched this, the evolution of this specialty uh, of heart failure, and uh, um, I've also watched the evolution of treatments. And, you know, maybe, Jerry, you could talk a little bit more about how has treatment changed? I mean, you've been doing this for more than a few years as well, and uh, things have really changed rapidly in the last decade or two. What do you think the pivotal changes are? I think the pivotal changes specifically with the, for those patients that have the type of heart failure where the pump function is reduced is getting a better understanding of the underlying mechanism and understanding the, the major cause for the syndrome uh, to begin with, related to the risk factors that Dr. Starling had, had addressed. But understanding those mechanisms have allowed us to take advantage of medicines uh, to blunt these abnormal pathways that are associated with um, disease progression. And so this dates back to you know, work done in the, in, the, in the 90s and late 90s. And really, we now have um, guideline therapy that's concrete and is associated with positioning our patients to live longer on these balance of medicines um, to have a better quality of life. And just within the last uh, two to three years, we even have had an additional medicine on top of this cornerstone background therapy, um, Sacubitril and Valsartan, that has further uh, positioned us to help our patients and reduce mortality and reduce the likelihood of being in the hospital. And so I think to get at uh, the underlying mechanisms is key and in heart failure, specifically those with the type where it's reduced heart function, um, significant, uh, significant advances. So Randy, the medical devices have really evolved as well. Maybe uh, could you summarize sort of what you think are the really rapidly progressing and, and the, what's the progress been in the, in the device world? What do people need to know? So I'll, <clears throat> I'll make three comments briefly. So number one, pacemakers are firmly embedded, so-called cardiac resynchronization devices. We worked with them for 10 years, cornerstone important for many of our patients. Number two, recent information has to do with leakage of the mitral valve, mitral regurgitation. Common problem, treated medically, no real surgical approaches, breakthrough this year. There's a procedure done in the cath lab. It's like putting a staple in the, the valve. The mitral clip. The mitral clip. Astounding results. The community's still wrapping their arms around it. We're waiting for the FDA. We think it's imminent that it will be approved. But reduction in death and hospitalizations, which is a big problem. Number three, at the end of the line, severe heart failure. What are the treatments? Transplant, mechanical support, or essentially hospice and palliative care. So mechanical circulatory support, the left ventricular assist device specifically, huge advances over the last 10 years, characterized by the momentum trial, which has taken us to the LVAD known as the HeartMate 3, new unique design characteristics that, as you and I know well, one of the big Achilles heels was clotting thrombosis of the pump. 
essentially been eliminated with the new pump. And there'll be a final chapter coming up uh, in March at the ACC when we're going to hear extended follow-up in over a thousand patients with this pump. So it's a very exciting area. Now, Jerry, you've been an, uh, an advocate and an innovator in uh, finding ways to keep people going while they're, they're getting ready for transplant and so on using some, some innovative mechanical support devices. Maybe you could talk for just a minute about that as well. So I appreciate that question, especially in light, a, in, in light of a change in the heart transplant allocation um, system, if you will. And um, we are now um, positioned um, to help our patients and support them with these device platforms that can be placed under the clavicle in the axillary um, artery. And our team here at the Cleveland Clinic has a vast experience in managing patients with more advanced heart failure, what we call shock. The heart can't generate the blood flow that the body needs um, to survive. And so with placing a standard intraortic balloon pump, for example, counter pulsation, uh, the balloon inflates and deflates and it, it uh, um, can help the heart function better. We're able to place this in a unique way in the cath lab um, in a very safe way. And we place the balloon pump um, upside down, if you will, and that allows patients to sit upright and even ambulate while waiting for a heart transplant. And our surgical colleagues in close collaboration with our team can place um, a device. It's a miniature version of the left ventricular assist device in terms of the rotor and where it sits in, in the uh, major artery just above the heart. And that device can, can be placed in the axillary artery, much like the balloon, typically done on the right side. So what's unique about these platforms is that they permit sitting upright in ambulation and they provide significant support to help stabilize patients with the opportunity now with the change in the heart transplant allocation score to get patients to transplant directly. Um, we now have a, a 500 mile radius from the donor hospital where those patients that are the, that are the sickest that need such device devices, a device like that, um, have the opportunity to be supported and be higher prioritized, if you will, and, and to get to transplant. And so we're seeing um, certainly that here um, locally and a lot of discussion around the country. We're going to be very interested in understanding the benefits and risks with such a strategy. And you've also, of course, sometimes able to get patients a bit stronger before they actually go. You know, and sometimes you get people a little bit late in the course of the disease and they've lost a lot of weight. They're very debilitated. And I've watched some pretty miraculous turnarounds where you've put these devices in, you get people up, you, you, you get them some rehabilitation, better nutrition, and then they go off for their transplant and they're a much better candidate. So that, that is exactly right. One of the added benefits of extended support is permitting time to get better and to minimize um, risk after a transplant related to nutrition status, as you've alluded to, and functional capacity. Um, and so those, those are very important observations and the, based on our preliminary experience, even some improvement in kidney function for those where the kidneys aren't doing well because the heart is ill, if you will. Yeah. And so multiple advantages with these short-term devices that we're using in select patients um, to bridge them to transplant. Well, I have one more question for, for uh, either or both of you, which is that what about gender and or racial differences in presentation? Uh, you know, uh, how do... Are, are there differences between men and women with respect to heart failure and also amongst different racial groups? What do we know? Let me, if I may, uh, take gender and Jerry can, because uh, he's had 
a lot of experience in his former practice area with diverse populations. But I want to mention, if you drop by up in the heart failure unit where I was this morning, I watched two of my patients walking up and down the halls with an intra-aortic balloon pump. In their, in their axilla. In yeah. their axilla. Yeah. So yeah. it is. That's remarkable. It's a sight to see, and it's real. Uh, so gender, I can't overemphasize the importance. Women are different than men. They have different... I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have different nuances. They have different presentations. Uh, so-called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction which we didn't even talk about 15 years ago, we know is rampant in women, especially in their sixth and seventh decade. And in particular, we're striving to find therapies for that condition. I also want to make mention in this awareness context, we have not done a good job, as you know, in enrolling women in clinical trials. So we've underrepresented women, not intentionally, in clinical trials, in leadership positions, on our faculties. So Heart Failure Society of America, and I know Cleveland Clinic, this is a most important area of focus. That's terrific. Uh, and uh, Jerry, about uh, racial issues and racial differences. So I'd like to highlight a few things about the, the racial differences, and one related to African Americans, and I think we've learned that the prevalence, in fact, higher in this patient population, and the underlying cause um, for many seems to be different. The number one cause of congestive heart failure is related to blocked arteries in the United States. The African Americans more commonly related to high blood pressure, and certainly it may be both coronary artery disease or blocked arteries and high blood pressure. But I think a, a highlight or a point is, is that um, high blood pressure is a major risk factor for developing congestive heart failure, and seems to be more so in African Americans for a variety of reasons. And so I think if that is a, a patient um, um, concern, certainly would merit screening, you want to be very aggressive to control blood pressure in this, in, in everybody, but certainly in this um, patient um, population. That's great. Well, first of all, thank you both for your efforts to bring awareness about this a huge public health problem. And this campaign is a Terrific, uh, you know, uh, terrific opportunity to educate uh, both the public and, and, frankly, many of our colleagues about, you know, the optimal management of these patients. And, uh, you know, I know you both worked very hard to bring to the Cleveland Clinic all of these advanced therapies that give us so many options for patients. So thank you for all that you thank do. You. And thank, thank you, you for watching. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.